Hey, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jonathan. And we are the Evangelicals. Today we're talking about social justice. And the reason we're talking about it is because a lot of evangelicals are talking about social justice this week. As last week, a very famous pastor, John MacArthur, you may have heard of him, listened to his stuff, his ministry, Grace to You. He wrote a rather controversy, controversial piece about social justice. Uh, Jeremy, tell us a little bit about it. So he wrote an article, and, and he's described as a prominent large church pastor from Sun Valley, California, evangelical. And uh, the article kind of just gives rise to the fact that he believes, and uh, he wrote this on his blog, that Christians are focusing too much on the idea of social justice, and we're getting away from what he would believe to be the main tenets of the gospel, the main tenets of the faith, uh, because we are lending ourselves to talking more about social issues and, and getting in the community or in the world. Um, and, and so he wrote a big article and, and, and apparently has a petition that many thousands of pastors yeah, have signed that saying that they agreed with him. I haven't looked at the list to see who those pastors are. But on the flip side, several pastors, uh, prominent evangelical pastors have also spoken I don't know if you'd say against or spoken for the social justice movement and how it relates to the gospel. Um, and, and, you know, I've tried to do a little bit of investigating, and, and one article said that they aren't all pastors. It could be other leaders, um, but the, the title said that I think it was like almost over 4,000 pastors have signed this petition. Um, so we're not here to get into the nitty-gritty of who signed it and who hasn't signed it, but obviously this article has raised a lot of questions about the social justice movement, about social gospel, about what is what is the role of it in the church? Does it have a role? Yeah. Uh, is it something that, that we should even be talking about or doing? Um, and, and so once again, a, a prominent evangelical leader has put this out and has stirred up some controversy and a lot of discussion, so we thought maybe we would just talk about it a little bit today. Yeah, there are a couple of things there well there are many things that the article touches on. The article that we're that we've looked at is found in Relevant magazine. If you want to get a um a biased perspective on MacArthur's work, you can go to Relevant magazine and see the article that was being writ- written about him. But MacArthur talks about reparations or um not reparations, but he talks about the sins of a previous generation. And he, he, he talks, he, he essentially asks the question, or he, not asks the question, but says it's not our responsibility to um, ask forgiveness for or to make amends for the sins of a previous generation as far as social justice is concerned. And he talks about the civil rights movement particularly. Um, and for Jeremy and I, and if you've been listening to our show, this this idea is something that's of interest to us because as we've said before, we we don't use the term evangelical as a badge. We just recognize that we are a part of a movement of people that has history. And so to say those evangelicals over there would just be very wrong for us because we are evangelicals. We're the children of them. And this was part of the this was part of MacArthur's words that I just that I found interesting. Where on the one hand I agree with John MacArthur, it is not it's not my place to pass judgment on um, 
the sins of my of my parents and my forefathers necessarily. I don't know their context. I don't know why they were doing what they were doing. However, I am responsible for my action in my life, which has been some, in some ways framed by those people who have come before me. And so as we tackle this conversation of social justice, we're not doing it necessarily to apologize for people whose sins are not ours to apologize for. But we are having this conversation to look at our own sins and those of those of the churches that we're a part of and those around us and to uh, really lean in and ask the question, what does what would Jesus say to us? What would the what would the good news message be for the Church of Jesus Christ in North America in twenty eighteen regarding social issues? Yeah. It reminds me of a quote, um, and, and I think Rob Bell said it, but I don't think he was the originator of said quote. But something to the effect of the church is the only organization that exists for its non-members. That the church is if if we are being who we feel Jesus is calling us to be, shouldn't shouldn't the world be getting better? Like like if we really are hope for the world, I mean if we're not hope for the world, that would be one thing. But I think that we would say that Jesus put us here to to breathe hope, to breathe life, to breathe new things into our communities, um, and, and that, that we believe that the world, that, that God is reconciling all things, and we are a part of that story. And if we don't believe that, that's one thing, but if we do, I think the, the natural outcome of that would be that our communities are getting better, and maybe children who can't read learn to read because there's a church in their community. Maybe um, people who don't have hope all of a sudden find a place that they can have that hope because we actually believe that Jesus wants the world to be a better place. You know, that quote that you just mentioned was used by one of our general superintendents at this last General Assembly for the Church of the Nazarene last summer. The general superintendent said, I'm sick and tired of hearing people say the church is the only organization that exists for its non-members. <laughs> and he was, you know... Um, couching that in a statement about how we need to be more focused to the the ministry to the people in the church but the prob- the problem is the, the reason that I feel discontented with both statements is that they they provide such a binary they provide such a polarization and I think I think that's at the heart of a lot of the issues that we talk about on this podcast is again it, there's not just there's not just them and us there's not just the world and the church. The kingdom of God is a new reality that breaks in, and the good news is a third way. I think that um, something that, that comes to mind is I think it can be a both-and, and it should be a both-and. Mm. Um, John Wesley at, at our church, we call him our homeboy, John Wesley, just to bring him into the 20, <laughs> That's cute. 21st nice. century, had a, a, a line that I think is huge in this understanding. And he says, there's no holiness, but social holiness. Now, I don't think that John Wesley was trying to say the social justice. I don't think he had that in mind. I think what he had in mind was discipleship, that the holy life is a community of people who are, who are learning together what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus, which then should propel us as we learn more about how Jesus lived, who Jesus was, to then have different eyes to see our community and the people that we come in contact with. And so there is this this understanding of we have to disciple people and we have to grow people to be more like Jesus, which once again should then the next natural step is 
we got to love God with everything that we are, but we also got to love our neighbor as ourself. And uh, two sides of the same coin. It's not two different commands, but two sides of the same coin. So if we are growing our church in discipleship, it seems like the next natural step would then be that we reach out to our community and the people around us. And Wesley, when he said what he was saying, he was saying it in the 18th century. Right. He didn't see the socialism as a public uh, political system that we saw in the 19th centuries and the 20th century. And I feel like when we use the word social, what people hear is socialism. What people hear is they hear, they hear the, the thing that, the, that America was warring against in the Cold War. They, they, hear, the, they hear the evils of, of communism or of political regimes with tyrants on top making everything equal for the people underneath. So before we go any further, let's let's define let's define social social justice and social gospel. Can we just talk about those for a minute just so we can be on the same page? Yeah. Once again, we you know in the first episode said, "Hey, we're Nazarene and we're Wesleyan." And I I think for me it goes back to what Wesley said, this whole social understanding lets me know that I'm a part of a local church, but I'm also part of a county in Paulding, Ohio. I'm also part of a state of Ohio. I'm a part of a country, which ultimately makes me uh, a human being and part of a the world. A social A social human being. Human being. And, and so if the gospel, it, as Wesley would say, that holiness should affect every aspect of our life, that as I am becoming a holy person, more and more like Jesus, it should literally transform all of my relationships with all of those different entities and how I view my life and my understanding of being a Christian in the world and evangelical in the world that I am placed. It should literally change everything. And, and so thus it changes how I interact, how I talk, how I choose to be involved politically, how I choose to be engage my local government, my local church. Um, and so that social understanding to me of social justice, social gospel is God transforms my heart. God transforms my life. He makes me more and more each day into a holy person, uh, not arrived, but I, he is making me holy. And therefore it should spill out into every aspect of, of who I am. I would hope. And the social gospel is a is a term that took a lot that took some momentum uh really at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century with thinkers influenced by people like John Wesley, but Rauschenbusch and William Booth the beginning of the the beginner of the Salvation Army who their theological problem with what it had become of revivalism in the church is that the gospel had become something very individualistic where the eschatology, the future, the, the point of salvation was to escape this life. And as they read the gospel, they just, they just weren't seeing it as that escapist theology was the ultimate end. Yeah. They were saying if, if the gospel of Jesus is correct, then the actions of Jesus ought to, ought to also follow. Healing better be a part of the gospel. Feeding people better be a part of the gospel. And furthermore, a, a changed life, a, trans, a transformation of individual family and community must 
must accompany the gospel if it really has the weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the social gospel became this term that then historically was kind of followed by the rise of socialism. Right. And so we and so I really feel like in the church, in a very unhealthy way, we've conflated these terms that um when you're if when you hear social gospel, you hear state socialism. Then, then you need to go back. You need to go back, and you need to read the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century thinkers and writers who were the ones who started hospitals, right? Were 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 um to be not to be not tools of the state, but to be localized entities where people were taken care of, where Christ's mission of healing actually had a physical representation in this world. And I think you see that through all of history. You know, I think of the the was it the Luddites and they went into the factory because the working conditions for the people, you know, and I think it was around Wesley's era and 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 they were standing up to this understanding of we value all of life and people are working under conditions that aren't great, that aren't uh to the where they should be. And then you you move forward and just um, you know, we talked about him before, but Bonhoeffer uh, this was a social understanding of I've got to stand up to a power that is that is hurting a whole nation, a whole group of people, and then you journey forward to Martin Luther King Jr. and you journey and it and it all has its roots in this understanding of of this the gospel should be transforming the whole world, and we see something that isn't the way God would want it to be, and because we are following after Jesus and who He was, it's it beckons us it it begs us to do something uh, to act in a social manner to see that these injustices are no longer so as i was thinking about this conversation and and us having it today one guy that came to mind was this guy named henry allen who was a yale professor in divinity school there um was losing his faith and moved in with a community of people with disabilities and found his faith again. And so he has a lot to say, I feel like, about who Jesus was and how Jesus lived. And he wrote a book called Compassion. And Great I think book. that, Great yeah, book. beautiful. If, and you, if, you, if you haven't read Compassion, if you get nothing else out of this podcast, you really should pick up. Go to Henry, Amazon right now. Henry Nouwen's Compassion. And get it. He had a quote about Jesus. And I think that as we talk about the church's response as we grow to be more and more like Jesus. I think this quote was just beautiful. I said this, what is important here is not the cure of the sick, but the deep compassion that moved Jesus to these cures. And as I read that, it, it made me think that sometimes we, when we're talking about social issues, we, we in the church have this understanding of, we just got to go help people. We just got to go help people. And I think what Henry Nouwen brings us back to is no, we need to learn more about Jesus. And as we learn more about Jesus and the, the reason that he healed all these people wasn't because he had the power, it was because he felt sorry for, he had empathy, felt sorry is probably not the right word. He had empathy for these people. And and I think in one line it says that they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And, and so he saw their sickness, he saw their pain. And because he had compassion, that's what moved him to to make life different for them. It wasn't, I've got to go do all these good things for for the community and for the people, but he he actually hurt for them. And out of that hurt and compassion, 
he was moved to actually do something for them. When people say social gospel, what I often hear them saying is, I want to use the gospel for my social agenda. I want to use the gospel for my political agenda. The gospel is social. Don't, Don't get me wrong here. The gospel is social. But the gospel, at least that Jesus proclaimed and came to reveal to the world, was always personal before it was social. So Jesus called individuals to follow him. And it was those individuals that started a movement in the world that became a religious movement, that became a social movement, that became a political movement. Even for, I mean, for the widows in Macedonia, it became an economic movement, you know? I mean, it it was a world changing movement. But what we forget and this is probably because Christianity is is so big, and since it's so large, we, we talk about it in a very non-personal way. What we forget, though, is that the gospel is primarily personal. Uh, one of the things that has just been amazing to me is in reading church history is that where the church has thrived, and you talked about this in our previous conversation before coming on air, where the church has thrived has often been... Um, in tough situations where the church doesn't have political power. And honestly, throughout the history of the church, most of the time uh, the church doesn't have political power. Now, obviously, there's um, the Catholic Church. uh, Part of the Reformation was an abuse of power. Uh, I don't want to have that historical conversation necessarily. But if we're talking about the early church, if um, if we're talking about the rise of Christianity, not in a conquest kind of way, um, but the grassroots movements of Christianity throughout history where the gospel has spread and re- where it's really thrived, the church has not been the politically dominant voice. It's been, it's been missionaries. It's been monks. It's been people who are on the bottom side of society who are representing Jesus. I mean, Mother Teresa is just an amazing example of this. Um, but what we've become obsessed with, and this is probably part of the reason that we're in conversation with the John MacArthur article, something that strikes us, is that it seems like in the 21st century, we Christians have become convinced that we can't get anything done for the gospel without political power. And we spend so much of our time trying to maintain political power, trying to use the gospel to push our political or social agenda, which is a completely backward approach to... Christian formation. Yeah, and, and interesting. So we fight to have Ten Commandments on courtroom walls. And I think the whole time in, in Jeremiah and the prophets and, and even Jesus said again and again and again, and, I, and maybe even Moses said, there's going to come a time when when the gospel or the, the law will be written on your heart. And we, we've, we've co-opted this understanding into saying if we can get... Ten Commandments on courtroom walls, if we can get this law passed, if we can get um, this political leader in office, then we've done our job. And I think the whole time is God saying, no, I want the Ten Commandments to be written in your life, how you live and how you talk and how you breathe, rather than hanging on a wall on some piece of paper, because at the end of the day, all you got is a piece of paper. But if you, if we could get people to, um, to, to truly embody 
what what my spirit is about if we can get people to truly live that out like that that could change the world it's interesting because um the early church didn't have a church building they didn't have like you said a lot of power they didn't have things that our world would classify as as a church that has made it um they didn't have lobbyists yeah they didn't <laughs> have roman senate they just know. they ate together every day and and god added to their number um, thousands. And, and it's interesting because Jesus in a short time probably could have, but that the people were waiting for him to overthrow the Romans. And, and it, it, while he was here, never happened. If, if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering, you know, are, are Jonathan and Jeremy saying that we should abandon the political system? I think I would say not necessarily, but I would say this, it's hard for us in North America as evangelical Christians to imagine our faith apart from politics because of a movement of the 80s called the Moral Majority, where um, a lot of our parents and their generation were very heavily influenced by uh, Jerry Falwell and his movement of people that were saying that the best thing that we could do for America is to get all of the um, Christian, right, conservative-leaning people to vote together to make political change in America. And so the goal became to have a uniform political platform that was um, essentially what the moral majority was trying to do was get conservative Christians to vote for the largest common denominators that were important to them and put them on a political platform and put someone in office. And uh, many people believe that this movement, along with the conservative movement of politics in America, is really what brought Ronald Reagan into power, which brought the Bushes into power. But the, the problem is life is a lot more nuanced than largest common denominators. Yeah, and you can't, you can't legislate morality you can't legislate true change in America. Yeah. You can't legislate um, – this, this may sound crazy. I'm not sure you can legislate God's kingdom because it's a movement. And, and so I think that the, the, the downfall was, once again, if we could just get the right person, then God would, would show up. If we could just – it reminds me a lot of Pharisees. If we can just get rid of all the impure people, then God will come and free us. God's waiting for us to get rid of the prostitutes, to get rid of the tax collectors, to get rid of the drunks, to get rid of all of these people. And then he will come and send Messiah so that we can be free from the Roman oppression. And it's almost like we've, we, we had this feeling, if we could just get the right laws passed, then God would do something big. If we could just get the right person that will help us get these right laws passed, then God may be able to, to heal our land and to forgive our land. And, and we sold, I feel like, a lot of the understanding of who Jesus was, once again, of, of these people throughout all of history who were enslaved, who were in bondage, who were cast aside, and he chose to use those people. I mean, just look at the disciples, the biggest ragtag bunch of people in the world of uh, coming together from all different political spectrums, and they literally changed the world. 
So even if we looked at that, we would see that it wasn't about being one political party. It wasn't about being one understanding. It was all of these different thoughts about what it meant for Messiah or what would happen or what we would need to do, sorry, for Messiah to come. And Jesus says, I'm going to bring you all together and we're going to create something different, something new, something that's totally goes against what you think uh, needs to happen in order for God's kingdom to come. What actually will bring it is when you come together and you push those things aside so that the new kingdom, the new understanding of who God is and who God wants to be in our world can happen through you. Amen. I mean, I would, I would say I would say amen to all of that. Um, there are Christians, people who um, are just are God-loving people on both sides of the political aisle. And for liberals, they would say, you know, we've got to legislate social change um, by allocating money, by all of us giving more of our money to take care of the poor. I studied at the University of Chicago, which is a um, pretty dynamic inst- academic institution, pretty prestigious. And um, I would say a majority of the people that I studied with were um, uh, liberal leading at the Divinity School uh, for uh, Barack Obama's second election. We had a lunch the next day, which was kind of a celebration of of his of his election, in which was just very interesting. This is a side note; it doesn't really have anything to do with this conversation today. They had a um, world-renowned political analyst there to host the lunch, and he declared he he declared pretty proudly there would not be a there would not be a an old white Republican elected for the next 20 years, which was kind of a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. And I just remember sitting there and I thinking to myself like, oh, well, he, you know, he must know what he's talking about. <laughs> you, know, and then, you know, four years later. Yeah. Exactly. Here we are. It's like a completely different situation. It, regardless. But, but um, studying in that institution, people, there were, there were people there that really faithful people loved the Lord, took very seriously the call of Christ. But the political ideology was that we need to get everyone to pay more taxes and so that we can give money to the poor. But what I saw in practice there was that the social act of legislating social care was really a deferment of responsibility. If I'm giving a really high percentage of my tax dollars, then I personally don't have to get my hands dirty with taking care of the sick, taking care of the poor. So that's that's kind of my crit- my critique of the left side of the aisle. My critique of the right side of the aisle, that's, that's because I've true. got one. And honestly, I mean, living in Northwest Ohio, that's where that's more where I live is is people that are probably more leaning to the right side of the aisle. Um, the conservatives say we we want to keep our money. Let's let the church be the ones that take care of the poor, that take care of the needy. But the fact of the matter is. The reason that the government has taken over healthcare in America is because the church has dropped the ball. Yeah. All of these hospitals, how did they start? Methodist hospitals, Catholic hospitals, Lutheran Jewish hospitals. hospitals, Lutheran hospitals. I mean, let's just keep the list going. Yeah. I mean, they all started as church as church movements for early early 20th century late 19th century people who were a part of the social gospel movement who saw the gospel who saw that their um their greatest need was to take the gospel to the streets in a practical way well the fact of the matter is 
the church at this point in history really has dropped the ball where we no longer are the ones taking care of people in a formal way. Now, now there are there, I don't want to I don't want to discount all of the people that are doing good. There are some sure. great people that I know even in this community sure. that are that are doing great work, but they're struggling because they, they can't get these they can't get these rich conservatives who are anti-liberal to give the way they say that they're going to give. They just they just can't. And so we have the, so we have this in my opinion we whether you're whether you're far right or you're far left I see as a crisis in America a crisis of Christianity being that people don't want to personally get involved with the gospel. And like I said earlier the the gospel is social but it's personal first. So let's say that socially you really care about feeding the poor. I think my question would be to you not what's your political agenda to get the poor fed? My question to you is when was the last time did you have someone over to eat? Forget a poor person. Let's just say hospitality in general. Yeah. When was the last time that you fed someone? Healthcare. Before we talk about what you, how you want to legislate healthcare, how you want to take care of the sick, when was the last time you picked up someone's hospital bill? When was the last time you and your small group, you and your church helped take care of a needy person who needed healthcare? When was the last time you personally didn't just open your wallet, but you actually sat at the bedside of a sick and dying person and took care of them? Transportation. This is a major social issue in my town. We have 150 churches, but we don't have any sidewalks. Yeah. Poor people in Lima, Ohio cannot get to work. We don't have sidewalks. We don't have a way for people who have DUIs or people that, um, people that don't have the right... Um, requirements to get a license or people that don't have enough money to afford a car or auto insurance. We don't have a way for them to get to work. We didn't, we didn't just pass our, uh, our levy for public transportation because the rich Christians in power don't think we need it. Cause we're not going to give tax. We're not going to give tax dollars to public transportation because we don't need it. I drive. I mean, why would I give money to, why would I give money to the RTA when I'm driving to work every day? Right. You know, abortion, is a big issue that not a lot of people see as a social issue. Uh, to me, it, it to me it's just as much of a social issue as it is a moral issue. Sure. And I would say if it's something that you're really, really passionate about, how many children have you adopted? Yeah. I mean, that's going to be your platform. Your house ought to be full of children because we have a we have a shortage of of Christian homes in America that are willing to bring into their homes the needy. The poor, the fatherless, the homeless, right? And I think it takes a different perspective, once again, of just getting the heart of Jesus. You know, you brought up Mother Teresa earlier, and and I think one of her famous quotes was, I, I can't think of anything better to do with my life than to hold somebody who is passing from this life into the next and seeing the face of God on them as they are passing. And And for us... Maybe one of the most prized things we do is I get to watch Alabama football every week on my couch. How in the world did that just make its way into our <laughs> podcast? We were talking about it earlier, I guess. And and but once again, it's just that perspective of where are the priorities and 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 do I do I count it a privilege to have somebody into my house? Do I count it a privilege to journey with that person by their bedside when they're passing from this world into the next? Do I view that as maybe as something that 
that is so beyond anything else that could bring me fulfillment and happiness and joy. Now, I think we we hear Mother Teresa talk about how hard it was and how she struggled uh, personally and, and spiritually to find out where God was. But I think she came back to again and again and again and again that she would see the face of God in the streets and the people with leprosy and the people that she was, was helping and the people that she was um, being able to take care of by just being there uh, once again on the streets where those people were. And so it, it, it's a, a sense of priority. I think it's a sense of entitlement. Like I have two cars or three cars in the garage or I have whatever. And how do we once again get the heart of, of God um, another now and quote from the book, uh, Compassion, that, that really I think speaks to this is he talks about how compassion isn't me reaching from my place of, of um, piety, isn't reaching from my place of privilege down to people to drag them up. Um, real compassion is going to where the hurt is and building a home there. And, and how we see in what Jesus did, who left a perfect place, he didn't stay in heaven, he didn't stay there and, and reach down, but he actually came to where we were and he walked our sod and he, he walked among us and he breathed our air and, and lived among us to show us who God actually was. And I think we see in that the true divinity of God and and that Jesus wasn't something separate from God. It wasn't like a side uh, show of who God was, but in Jesus we see the true picture of who God really is. Well, this is incarnational theology. Yeah, and it's interesting that you would bring that up. I mean, let's so let's just talk about ourselves. Let's talk about pastors. I mean, if we're talking about evangelical pastors in America, senior pastors, white evangelical senior pastors that are full time pastors in America by and large, do not live below the poverty line. We do not take a vow of poverty as evangelical pastors, which is different than Catholic Catholic priests for sure, but pastors in the past. We have started to measure salaries in the church the same way that the world does, kind of, you know, I'm entitled to this much money because I'm having this much success or this many people coming or we're bringing in this many dollars. And fundamentally, because we leading the church are not taking vows of poverty, we are no longer self-identifying with the people that we're talking about as statistics as we talk about social gospel in kind of a political or economic way, where the gospel, again, was always meant to be personal you can't just talk about poor people as a general category. If you're if you're proclaiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus, a bearer of the good news, poor people have to have a name and face. Yeah. You have to be identifying with them personally. I'm speaking to myself here. I I get very I get very nervous when somebody wants me to talk to them about a political agenda for uh kind of how we should take care of people in a social or a political way. Because I I just fundamentally don't understand the gospel of Jesus to work in that order. I understand that social political movements throughout the history of the church have begun by individuals encountering or um, interacting with the gospel in a life-transforming way. And so my role is not to change America's political system primarily as a Christian. 
as a Christian, my role is to take care of the poor person next to me, to take care of the sick and dying person in the nearest hospital. That's my role. It's not to begin some sort of social change. Now, granted, that might actually be the thing that cultivates social and political change. And honestly, if, if enough of us would do that, it probably would create a whole lot of political and social upheaval in this nation. It reminds me of uh, Matthew 25. The, Absolutely. The only time Jesus talked about judgment when he's separating the sheeps and the goats as far as what the final judgment's going to be about is— Has nothing to do with praying a prayer, Jeremy. Has nothing to do with <laughs> philosophy of religion. Absolutely nothing to do with going to the altar. Right. He doesn't say recite the Apostles' Creed and you can get it. He doesn't say um, how many times you go to church. He says— when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. Uh, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. That's those people you get to come. And 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 the one thing I love about the response of the disciples or the response of the people who are uh, the sheep is they say, when? And the one thing I love about that. Yeah, when did we do this? Yeah, they were just living life the way that they thought Jesus was calling they're them surprised. to live. Yeah, it's they're as so if, surprised. It's as if they were expecting to be damned. Yeah. It's, they're like, oh, surely we're not going to make it. And he says, when you guys did this, they're like, oh, uh, I hate to break it to you, Lord, but uh, uh, that, you're talking to the wrong people because we don't, we don't know what you're talking about. Well, I think it goes back to the, what we were talking about earlier. For them, it wasn't a, a thing that we got to go. They were just living the way that God had called them to live, which pushed them to to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and give water to those who were thirsty and go to the prison and go to the hospital bedside. It wasn't this like, okay, now you're a Christian. We got to go change the world. It was, no, Jesus has so transformed us. This is just the natural outcome. And so I think when Jesus says, you did this, he's like, when? Like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, it's like you were doing it to me. Man, and this has been a good conversation for me, but it, it kind of brings us back to um, John MacArthur, which is where we started this conversation. And in the article, uh, I read the one from Church Leaders, too. There's several publications that had written articles about this petition that he got signed. Um, but it, it said that his definition for social justice was more of a political understanding. And, and so it was... Um, political identity, it, it had this understanding of socialism and the, the, the political movement known as socialism. And so it seemed like he wasn't, he was more concerned that, that America was going to lean its way down this direction if the church would to still, or if the church were to still talk about this, if the church were to live this, that he was afraid that our democracy might be in jeopardy potentially if the church was going to um, push this. And so he wants to come back and say, this is not part of the gospel because of the social ramifications of what that might look like. Which brings up a question for me of, okay, so what, so what happens if America turns socialist? Now I'm not proposing that we do. <laughs> come on, okay? Jonathan, come on. I realize I'm, I'm, I'm not proposing that. I'm not proposing that you vote right or left or anywhere in between. I'm honestly not interested in American politics in that way. 
what I'm interested in as a as a pastor, as a as a Christian, as someone whose faith is at the essence at the at, whose faith is at the core of who I understand myself to be, and how I shape my family life. If America becomes completely libertarian or completely socialist, it doesn't change the way I live my life. Yeah. Now, if the government, if 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 we go socialist in a political way, I understand that means that I, more of my tax dollars would go to that movement, but it also means that I would get more benefits from that movement in a in a financial financial way. I mean, there's there's gives and takes. There's there's giving and taking. I'm like stumbling over my words here. I I just I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Sure. What I am saying is it makes no difference. It makes no difference what the political system is or it shouldn't make a difference as to how we live our life. That if it's really good news for the world, then it can actually have life in communist China. It can which have it life, has, which it is which exploding, it has saving. I mean, it's has really preserved um, and kept intact a lot in that country. Yeah, and, and so if it, if it's really good news for the world, it can thrive there. It can thrive in poor Ethiopia, uh, where in Africa itself the continent is having this explosion of of the church uh, growing in leaps and bounds and. Um, so once again, if it's good news for the world, then it it is it, the gospel isn't dependent on a democratic, uh, a democracy in order for it to thrive and grow and be what it needs to be. Um, I'm not sure that um, first century Rome was uh, set up like current day America, and yet the gospel grew and grew and grew. And so uh, I think what you're trying to get at, and, and maybe you can say a little bit more, is is that us living and breathing who Jesus is calling us to be has no bearing on what current political system we find ourselves in. But it's good news, not because of where we live, but because of the God that we worship. Regardless regardless of the political system, my social expression ought to be informed by being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Yeah, And so I must take care of the poor people around me. I must... Take care of widows. I must tend to the sick. And this isn't just my vocation as a as a pastor, because I'm the one who's shepherding or leading a collective of God's people, of Christians. But it's just, it's the basic call of the priesthood of all believers, that God's glory might be known in all of the earth. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is what the this is the work of the Holy One to care for these people. And um, I can't control what what governments do, and and the thought that we can is really an illusion. Yeah, it really is an illusion. And we're if we give our lives to chasing political change, we're chasing something that we can never catch. And if we ever have the illusion of catching it, we ought to be mindful that when we die, the pendulum's just going to swing the other way, as it always does, has done throughout history. You want to make it. You want to make an eternal impact. In history, find the poor person next to you. Take care of the sick. Invite into your home the fatherless, the homeless. Reminds me of um, listening to Shane Claiborne talk one time, and uh, remind he was talking about a passage in 
the Bible where Jesus looks at his disciples and and I think they were catching some grief because they were celebrating on a day that maybe they shouldn't have been celebrating and 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 someone looks and says, "Why are you celebrating now?" And um, rather than giving this money or this understanding, this 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 wealth to the poor, and Jesus said, makes a statement. He says, "The poor you will always have with you, but I'm only going to be with you for a little while longer." Now, I think that we've taken that, and sometimes in the church we've looked at it and said, "See, Jesus says there's always going to be poor people. We can do whatever we want to with government. There's always going to be poor people. We can get all the money we want. We can gain all we want. We can buy the bigger boats, the bigger houses, whatever." Which nothing. I'm not saying anything wrong it's with that. It's just kind of this fundamentalist reading that Jesus was making a declaration that, "Hey, there's it's always going to okay. be poor people. It's okay that there's poor people. You yeah, guys. There's the, there's... Somehow we read it as, "Hey, guys, you can be indifferent because yeah. you're always going to have these poor people. What if?" This is where Claiborne gave a twist. Um, what if what Jesus meant was rather, if you are following after me and you are truly becoming my disciple, not that there will always be poor people, but you as the people of God will always be among the poor people. And it seemed like in this passage, Jesus was saying, hey, I'm here now, but in your life after I leave, I am with you now, but as you follow after me, you will always be among the poor and they will always be part of your life. If you want to connect with us online or on Twitter, um, my handle is Jonathan Berkey, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-B-U-R-K-E-Y. And you can find me at Thompson7Jeremy. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. It is produced by Isaac Smith.